Some of you may have noticed that our preaching order is a little bit out of whack. Uh, So for all two of you that did notice, let me explain what that is and what we'll be doing this week and in the few weeks to come. Uh, We've been in the middle of a preaching series that we've called Be the Church. So what it means to not just go to church, but actually to be the church. What's the nature of the church and identity of those who call themselves members of Jesus' church, even at a church like this one at Seven Mile Road? Um, we were going through that series, and then my wife, Shainu, decided to go into labor, despite my request to hold that off a little longer. Um, and so we paused on that series last week, and if you were here, Binu preached for us and did so wonderfully. And so uh, you have a seven-pound baby boy named Micah to blame for all of that. So um, we've been sort of thrown out of whack a little bit. And then next week, we're actually going to pause again because we're going to be dedicating some of our children. So we're going to consider what the scriptures have to say to us as parents and to our kids. And so since we've got sort of some miscellaneous weeks coming, we're going to pause on our Be the Church series and pick that up in a few weeks. Uh, And that's the plan is to pick that up, finish off with the last two sermons of that series, and then begin a good long look at the book of Exodus. Um, We've been jumping around from a bunch of different topics, which has been great, but I'm really anxious for us to be in one book of the Bible and start at the beginning and go all the way to the end. And so we figured the 40 chapters of Exodus would give us a good chance to do that. So we'll be in a good run through Exodus for the better part of the remainder of the year. So that's what we've got planned. Um, But as always, the Lord is able to uh, interrupt, change, redirect any of those plans. Okay, so what we wanted to do today was preached through, what I wanted to teach through was gospel-centered living, or the gospel-driven life, gospel-centered life, all right? Uh, And there's three reasons why I want to take the time that we have today, sort of as we're doing some of these standalone sermons that are not necessarily connected to a bigger sermon series. Today, I want us to teach through, think through what we mean by gospel-centered life, gospel-centered living. And, And here are the three reasons I want to do that. One is Because at a church like Seven Mile Road, gospel can become a word that means anything, everything, and ultimately nothing, right? Gospel-centered, phrases like gospel-driven, those can become buzzwords at places like Seven Mile Road where we're all using them, but no one's really sure what we mean when we use them. Right? We talk about our sermons being gospel-centered and living centered on the gospel and sanctification driven by the gospel. But if we do not on occasion return to define these words and remind ourselves of why they're important to us, we'll eventually lose the meaning of them. Right? We'll use them for anything and everything till eventually they mean nothing. Right? So if you've been at Seven Mile Road for any time, you know that we've got three words that are central to our identity here at this baby church. We use the words gospel, mission, and community. Those are good words because they're biblical words. Every one of them is rooted from the scriptures and taken out of the scriptures, and they help define and shape all that we want to be, gospel, mission, and community. But again, we want to return on occasion to define them, to remind ourselves of why we've built the identity of this whole place around those three words, okay? Uh, Words can lose their meaning if we're not careful to do that. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, gives this example using the word gentleman. He says that the word gentleman is a word that when you hear it, you've got an idea of what it means. But originally, that word was not just an adjective to describe a male, it was a word that specifically meant a man who had a coat of arms, okay? That's, that's what the word gentleman meant. So it wasn't just a good guy or any guy. It was a specific defining sort of word. But then it began to be used in any context, in every context, till it lost its meaning, till it meant anything. We've already got a word for male. What we didn't have was a word for man with a coat of arms, but we've lost the word. The same thing can happen with words like gospel-centered. It can become jargon that's thrown around here so that we use it all the time for everything, but it really means nothing anymore to us. So we want to remind ourselves of what that is. A second reason why I want us to talk through that today is practically. The second and third reasons for us is practically we're about to launch our soul care communities. Okay, so if you're new to Seven Mile Road, Soul Care is our smaller communities here at the church. So we gather big like this on Sundays. We gather in smaller communities in homes and apartments and living rooms throughout the week. 
When we meet in these communities, one of the things that drive our smaller communities is that we're trying to live life honestly with one another. So it's not your typical Bible study in that we're really trying to know one another and be known by one another and allow people to see us for who we really are. If you grew up in church, you're very likely to have learned the game of religion, how to put on a good face. But what we want to do in these communities is allow people to be who they really are and to be known for who they really are. And when we share life like that, one of the things that we often talk about is we want to point one another to the gospel. We want to apply the gospel to all our circumstances. We've really got this conviction at our church that when someone vents about what's going on in their life, we're not trying to offer them human wisdom, three tips to have a better whatever. We're trying to point them to the gospel. Because our conviction is really the solution for every situation of our lives is Jesus. So again, in our soul care communities, though, if we throw around phrases like applying the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself, preaching the gospel to one another, but aren't really sure what that means, the whole experience can become a really frustrating one. You're not experiencing any transformation. You're not seeing any changes. You're not hearing anything really helpful. And so you sort of go around in a room, vent your sin. It's, it's like this really lousy support group. And, and the whole experience can be a frustrating one. So we really want to know what the gospel is and how it applies to our lives so that we might be able to preach the gospel to one another. The third reason, again, real practical for us, is we're starting a study called Gospel-Centered Life. So you saw the announcement for that. That's coming up this week. If you notice at Seven Mile Road, we don't have a lot of programs. That's often very intentional. We're not trying to fill up your week with lots of church stuff so that you can't be with your family or be on mission to the city that Jesus has called you to. But every now and then, we come across something that we feel like is going to be worthwhile for you to come and participate in. Gospel-centered life study is one of them. We feel like this is going to give the DNA of what we're hoping as a church to you. And so what I want to do is sort of just try and whet your appetite and pique your interest in it. Right? It's, It's like if you go to a movie theater, the first 10 minutes, you don't see the movie that you paid for. What you see are trailers, right? Little glimpses of other movies, and if they work, they've grabbed your attention enough so that you might go and invest in that. So that's what I want to do today. I want to give you little glimpses of some of the material that even comes from Gospel-Centered Life to hopefully whet your appetites enough that you might consider participating in the study even this week. And again, because it's not a filler kind of thing, it really has some of the DNA that we're hoping all of us share as people of Seven Mile Road Church. All right, so to do that today, we're, we're talking through gospel-centered living. Okay, one more word of introduction. We're doing it a little bit differently today in that I actually have a PowerPoint that we're going to be using. I've got a fancy clicker, and we're going to go through slides. Uh, I have never done that before in a church, so if you've been here at Seven Mile Road, you know we've got a pulpit in the front. All I use are some notes. We've got very little gimmicks, no real bells, whistles, slides, music videos, none of it. We just sort of go. Today, we're going to try and work through some of these things as we uh, grab this material. If I wasn't really convinced that this might at least be helpful for you in some way, I would never try it. So hopefully we'll learn today whether we'll ever do something like this again or if we're going to burn all our computers after this service. Okay? So let me pray, and then we'll consider this together. Our God, we give you thanks for these men and women that you have gathered here. We thank you for the different stages of life that they're in, even the different stages of their journey, their spiritual journey, their walk with or towards God. We pray that you would encounter each of us wherever we are today and that you would show us how the gospel relates to the exact place that we are. Some of us need to meet you. Some of us need to be drawn further and deeper into you. We pray that you would be faithful to meet both people. We pray that you would bless our time as we consider your word and its truth, and that you would show to us how the gospel does apply to every one of us. We pray for your spirit and his help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Gospel-centered living. We're going to start with this verse from Romans 1. This is what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you'll notice, we've highlighted two words in that. We've highlighted the words gospel and salvation. And so what we want to ask as we start is, what is the connection between those two words, right? How does the gospel relate to salvation? And at least in the text, the text itself is going to say, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So whatever we're going to say about how the gospel applies to life and salvation, the text is at least going to start by saying the gospel is the power for salvation. So what we want to do is we want to unpack a little further what that second word salvation means. So that if we can get what salvation is, we might better be able to understand how the gospel is actually the power of God to it. All right. So let's talk through salvation. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about a big umbrella word under which the scriptures use three other words. The words justification, sanctification, and glorification. All right? So depending on your background or what you may have received from the scriptures or how you may have read them, generally when we hear the word salvation, we've got one sort of idea in mind. But in the scriptures, they're sort of nuanced to mean one of three different things. It's one big umbrella reality that has within it these three smaller realities called justification, sanctification, and glorification. All right, justification, what is that? If I were to ask for some interaction, what's justification? Some of my theology track men, you better answer. Otherwise, those ladies are going to think that we just waste our times on Saturday. What's justification? Excellent. All right, so you know we don't waste our time on Saturday mornings. Did you hear that? That's straight out of a theology textbook, all right? Justification is this legal contract where we come to faith in Jesus. So it happens like that. It's, it's as if God is a good judge. We are sinners because of our sin. By nature and choice, we've sinned against God. We deserve punishment just like any criminal would. We're standing before the judge who is God, and God does the most incredible thing. He justifies everyone who has repented and believed in Jesus. That means there's this great exchange that takes place where our sin is put on Jesus, Jesus' righteousness is given to us, and we trade places at the cross. And it happens in a moment. The moment you come to faith in Jesus, the moment that you realize my old life is bankrupt, I foreclose on that whole reality, I'm going to live a new reality under Jesus, I'm going to trust him for my sins, I've been justified. And that begins a second process that the scriptures call sanctification. All right, I won't call on you again. Sanctification after this moment is this lifelong process by which we're being made into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? So if you've been justified, God will then sanctify you. That is, he'll not only forgive your old life, but change your old life so that you have a new life in Jesus. And this isn't a moment-like thing. It's a day-by-day-by-day sort of thing. And it doesn't stop. And every day, we keep growing in sanctification until we come to the end of our lives and we reach glorification. And in that day, what happens is the scriptures say, all those who were justified and who have been sanctified will also be glorified. That Jesus will come and we'll be with him and finally and forever we'll be like him. We'll be without sin. We'll be completely glorified. The scriptures have three ways of saying this and you can hear the tenses or see the tenses as you go through it. In justification, it's sort of this past tense, right? Ephesians 2.8 will say, for it is by grace you have been saved. Do you hear that? So if you were in second grade again and we were going through the the tenses, we'd say that was past tense. We have been saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 will say, For the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So again, you, you have to wrap your minds around the idea that the scriptures use salvation in some different ways because it talks about, For it is by grace you have been saved. The message of the cross is the wisdom of God to us who are being saved. 
And then the scriptures will speak of glorification in 1 Peter 1. It'll say that we're waiting for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. So you have to wait. You have to go, I thought we were saved. I thought we are being saved. And yet the scriptures say, yes, all of that's true. And still there's a sense of which salvation is still yet to come. Because the scriptures say, for we're waiting for salvation. We're being guarded for salvation that is ready to be revealed. Or another verse will be Romans 13, verse 11 will say, For we are nearer to salvation than when we first believed. Hear that again. So not that we've already got it, but that we're nearer to salvation than when we first believed. And so when the scriptures speak of this big umbrella word salvation, it's this idea that we've been saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. We've been justified, we are being sanctified, we will be glorified. Does that make sense? So what we want to ask is, how then does all three of those happen? And the answer is that the gospel, Jesus' cross, is central to all three realities. And in each one, the cross does a particular work. In the first one, in justification, we're being saved from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we're being saved from the power of sin. In glorification, we're being saved from the presence of sin. So let's walk through that for a second. In justification, when I put my faith in Christ, what happened is I confessed to Jesus, saying, you're right, I am a sinner, my life is messed up, and the reason is because of this nature in me that I can't change. So I put my faith in Jesus, who died in my place for my sins, took the punishment that I should have received. And again, remember the image. Like a, a, a person standing before a judge, our guilt was removed. So in justification, we've saved, been saved from the penalty of sin. But then Jesus begins this lifelong process called sanctification, where day by day, I've died with Christ and risen with him to new life. I'm being sanctified so that the power of sin is being broken over my life, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 17 will say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So day by day, I'm being saved from the power of sin. And you know that in your life. If you've become a Christian, you know that the things that once thrilled you and delighted you and lured you has lost some of its power on you. You don't enjoy it the way that you do. And somehow, you actually find yourself drawn to God. This God that you once could care less about now actually begins to delight your soul. That's, that's evidence of sanctification. You're being saved from the power of sin. And there is a day coming, the scriptures say, when we'll be saved from the presence of sin. First John will say, we'll see him and we'll be like him. And on that day, Revelation says, he'll wipe away the tears from our eyes and there'll be no more sickness and no more sadness and no more death and no more decay and there'll be no more sin because Jesus will actually forever defeat Satan and sin and death and we will live and breathe an air that we were supposed to breathe from the beginning, an air without sin, a life without sin, an eternity without the presence of sin. And so the cross is central to all three. And so what we want to ask is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for all of it. The gospel is the power of God for justification. We know that. So all those who have repented and believed have become a Christian. Does that make sense? We also know that the gospel is the power of God for glorification. So when you get to the last day, only those who have repented and believed will be glorified. Does that make sense? But we often forget that in the middle, the gospel is also the power for sanctification. That if you began by repenting and believing in Jesus, and you'll end with only those who have repented and believed in Jesus being with him, what do you think needs to happen as you live this life? but that you repent and believe again in the gospel. Because what we can tend to do is we become a Christian by the gospel, and then we sort of see Jesus' cross as something way back in the rearview mirror, and we have no idea how the cross applies to daily life. We just know on the last day we'll need to make sure that we repented and believed. And so what we want to say is go back to our verse and say, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So hear this with me. 
The gospel, that means, is the power of God for salvation, past, present, and future, not just conversion. So the cross wasn't something you just believed in to become a Christian and you sort of left behind and now you're going to get after this thing and make yourself really good and acceptable to Jesus. But rather the cross needs to find its way into everyday life. The gospel needs to be central to not just your conversion, but your sanctification and will be key to your glorification. Let's read this. Therefore, repentance and faith in the gospel is the way you begin Christian life, that's justification, the way you continue in Christian life, that's sanctification, and enter Christian life, that's glorification. What I'm, what I'm laboring to try and get you to see is, if this began by repentance and faith in the gospel, it needs to continue by fresh repentance and fresh faith in the gospel so that all those who have repented and believed will inherit the life of the gospel, the life of eternal life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So what that means is it's not that one day someone told me I was a sinner and I repented and trusted in Jesus, but that every day I'm to be growing in my repentance and faith. You began by repentance and faith. You continue by repentance and faith so that all who have repented and had faith will be glorified. Okay, if all this was real for us, then what would happen is we would begin to grow in the gospel. We'd grow in repentance and faith. The cross wouldn't be some stale reality in our past. It would be huge in our present. It wouldn't be just something that got us in the door. It would be the path as well. Let's read this last one. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Z. It's not just the front door, but the path as well. That's what I mean. It's not just something that got you in the door and now you've left and moved on to something more but it's the means by which you continue in Christian life. It's the path that we walk. So we ought to be growing in the gospel. Instead, what often happens is we shrink the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. I want to walk you through a chart that comes, again, out of gospel-centered life, so hopefully it'll pique your interest and you might consider being a part of this. But if you were to imagine that that's your life as time passes... If you become a Christian, there's some moment in your life when you convert, when, when suddenly, again, your old life is bankrupt and you see it as being such, and so you declare bankruptcy, you foreclose on that old life, and now you trust in Jesus. And when that happens, suddenly two realities come to mind. One is that there's this trajectory in your life where you begin to grow in your awareness of God's holiness. The other trajectory is you begin to grow in your awareness of your own sinfulness. And both these trajectories keep going for the rest of your life. As you progress in faith, you all the more begin to grow in your understanding of how holy God is. And as you grow in your faith, you begin to understand all the more of how truly sinful you are. Those two trajectories keep going. Now, I, I need to note that it's not that God is becoming more holy, okay? God is holy. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that your awareness of how great and how glorious and how good and how holy he is keeps growing over time. So if you've become a Christian, you know that on day one, you had sort of this baby faith. But then you read the scriptures and people taught you and the spirit was in you and you prayed. And suddenly you began to see that God was even better than when you first knew him. Some of you have been at Seven Mile Road, and you know that God is becoming more glorious in your time here as you've interacted in community and, and sat under his word. The other reality is you also grow in your awareness of your sin. And again, I need to note, that's not meaning that you become more sinful. Hopefully the opposite is true. When you become a Christian, hopefully you're sinning less, but your awareness in light of who he is, of who you are, continues to grow. Right? That's why if you've met some really godly people, you'll often see that they are really broken up about the sin in their lives. And you look at them and you go, man, I just wish I could have your faith 
What are you complaining about? I wish I could get to your level. But for them, and they're not being modest, there's just this brokenness as they realize that God is holy and that they are sinful. They know their sin. When you came to faith, what you began to realize was Jesus is holy and God is holy and I'm sinful. And the only hope that you had to bridge that gap was the cross. Does that make sense? You had nothing else. You, you had no prayers to offer God, no good deeds to offer God. You began to see that he's so good and you're so flawed. The only thing that could meet that gap, that could bridge that gap, was the cross of Jesus Christ. You would imagine if that's how we began, that's how we'd continue. That the cross would continue to be the only thing we've got going for us. The only righteousness we have in our lives. The only thing that can bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. But rather than growing in the cross, we minimize it or shrink the gospel in two ways. We live lives of performance and pretending. That's what we'll call it. And here's what this means. That rather than recognizing God to be holy and us to be sinful and the cross being the only answer that can bridge the two, we begin to try and figure out some way to bridge the gap ourselves, to establish some kind of righteousness of our own. We'll either perform so we'll try to be better than we are, and we'll try to show God how good we are, and we'll try to minimize the holiness of God by showing him how good we are. Or we'll pretend, rather than recognizing we really are as bad as we're beginning to see about ourselves, we'll try and pretend that we're not so bad. We'll compare ourselves with other people. At least I'm not as bad as them. We find something to sort of prop ourselves on, stand ourselves upon, and some righteousness of our own. We try to create something to bridge the gap. We perform or we pretend. Let me give you some examples of this. The question there is, what do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility, validity, acceptance, good standing? So what this is asking is, when you begin to see that God really is good and you really are sinful, you got to come up with something to give you a reason of why you exist and why you're a good person and why you're not that bad. You need something to stand on to establish your own sense of righteousness, why you're not a waste of space, why you, why you are, should be accepted and, and considered to be good. Your answer to this question will often reveal something besides Jesus in which you find righteousness. When we are not firmly rooted in the gospel, we rely on these false sources of righteousness to build our reputation and give us a sense of worth and value. Listen to what it says in Romans 10. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. The scriptures say, listen, this is what man does. Rather than continuing to see the cross as the only thing that can bridge the gap, man keeps trying to find a righteousness of their own. Let me give you some examples and see if any of these resonate with you. See if you recognize any of these tendencies in your own heart. Because if we're not finding righteousness in Jesus, we'll find it somewhere. So some of you will say job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Family righteousness. Because I do right things as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Schedule righteousness. I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Mercy righteousness, I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way that everyone else should. Political righteousness, if you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. Legalistic righteousness, I don't drink, smoke, or curse, or hang around those who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Financial righteousness, I manage money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. We could keep going, right? But maybe at some point you begin to see that there's something there, and there could be others, where I begin to find some kind of righteousness for myself. I don't want to face the reality of who I really am in light of who he really is, so I build myself on something of why I'm not a waste of space, why I'm better than the other, why I'm acceptable to God. 
And we come up with all kinds of different ways where we prop ourselves up rather than receiving righteousness from Jesus. Like Romans 10 says, we seek to establish our own. Okay, if that resonates with you, hopefully the question that should be beginning to burn in your hearts is, how do I leave that? How do I stop living this life of performing and pretending? Because here's what happens when you do this. When you live this life and you're not constantly going back to repentance and faith in the gospel, when you keep trying to find your own righteousness, what happens is that the cross remains small and underdeveloped and immature your whole life. The, the cross becomes stale. It's not fresh good news because you don't see how it relates to your present life. It just becomes something that you once believed in back then. And rather than the gospel growing in your life, you keep finding ways to make yourself righteous and you keep pushing away your need for Jesus. You needed him once, but you don't see him as your savior every day. In fact, you create your own senses of righteousness and the cross stays small. So how do we turn from that? And how do we begin to grow in the gospel? When you ask that question, now you're beginning to walk down the path of gospel-centered living. Now you're beginning to ask the question of how does the gospel apply not just to justification, how I began, but sanctification, how I continue? How does the gospel become central? When you ask that, I want, I want you to hear this, that what you're beginning to do is now you're going to have to go to the heart. You're going to have to do, as one pastor calls it, the hard work of heart work. And what you're going to have to begin to see is that in your heart is idolatry and unbelief. And you're going to have to deal with it, and you're going to have to see that the gospel is the only remedy to deal with it. Let me read this for you. Our surface sins are only symptoms of a deeper problem. Underneath every external sin is a heart idol, a false god that has eclipsed the true god in our thoughts or affections. The key to gospel-driven transformation is learning to repent of the sin beneath the sin, the deeply rooted idolatry and unbelief that drive our more visible sins. So what we're saying is this. When you first become a Christian, you repent and believe. But as you continue in life, what you've got to begin to see is that there's still places in your heart where you have not fully believed the gospel and need to believe it again. And so you need to repent and believe. You need to see what your idols are and repent of the unbelief behind your sins. Let me give an example. Gossip. All right. If you approach this without the gospel, usually what happens is what Christians or moralistic people will do is I gossip. So we slap our wrists and we go, bad gossiper, bad gossiper, I'm not going to gossip anymore. When you do that, all that you've done is you begin to work on your will, but you've ignored your heart. You've ignored the question of, why did you gossip? What were you looking for? What were you longing for? What is it in your heart that you desired so badly that you would gossip in that situation? Why did you gossip then as opposed to other times? What is it that you were looking for? What was it in your mind that you needed that made you gossip? What we are looking for, we should be finding in God. Here are some of the common heart idols that can manifest themselves in the surface of gossip. So just consider some of these sources behind why you might gossip. The idol of approval. I want the approval of people I'm talking to. So maybe in that instance, I need these people to think of me a certain way and so if gossip is what it takes, I'll do that because I'm after their approval. Does that make sense? It's not just bad gossip or bad gossiper. It's deep down in my heart, I'm looking for something, something that I actually have in Jesus. But because I don't believe the gospel, I need it from these people, right? I need approval. I don't believe the gospel that I have approval in Jesus. And so I need it from you, so I'll do gossip. The idol of control, using gossip as a way to manipulate, control others. The idol of reputation, I want to feel important, so I cut someone else down. The idol of success, someone is succeeding and I'm not, so I gossip about him. The idol of security, talking about others masks my own insecurity. The idol of pleasure, someone else is enjoying life and I'm not, so I attack her. The idol of knowledge, talking about people is a way of showing that I know more. 
The idol of recognition, talking about others, gets people to notice me. The idol of respect, he disrespected me, so I'm going to disrespect him. We could keep going. But, but what I want you to see is underneath all of our sins is a sin beneath the sin. Some kind of heart longing. And the scriptures call it an idol, a false god. And what you're essentially saying is you are, and you can pick any one of them, security, comfort, approval, recognition, whatever. What you're essentially saying is you are so important to me that I will do whatever it takes to have more of you. And if gossip is what it takes, then that's what I'll do. Does that make sense? Those are the same words you could actually say to Jesus, right? You are so important to me. I'll do whatever it takes to have more of you. That's called worship. But when we do it for one of these, that's called idolatry. And behind our sin, we all do it. You're what I'm really after. And if I could just have, and you could fill in the blank, recognition, then I would be satisfied. Then I would know I'm worth something. Then I would be at peace. Then I would have joy. And I will do, that's called worship, whatever it takes to have you. That's why everybody's got a God. The question is, is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be one of these? Everyone's living their life for something. There's something that we go, if I could just have that, then my life would be worthwhile. And I want you to hear, whatever that is, is your God. And the scriptures are pleading with you. Don't chase that because you could already have it and have it better than you could have ever imagined in Jesus. But you don't believe the gospel. So you need to repent and believe that everything you're looking for is in Jesus. All these idols are false saviors promoting false gospels. Every one of these things, approval, control, reputation, success, security, pleasure, knowledge, recognition, respect, is something we already have in Jesus because of the gospel. But when we are not living in light of the gospel, we turn to these idols to give us what only Jesus can truly give us. Let me give you some examples of this. What would it look like if we went from theory down to the ground level and say, how does this apply? How do we apply the gospel to our hearts? I want to ask you three questions. What is the sin? Expose the sin behind the sin. And what would it look like to preach the gospel to yourself? All right, so let's consider a lie. Lie. All right, if you don't do this with the gospel... You'll do it like a religious, moralistic person. You'll slap yourself on the wrist and say, bad liar, bad liar. I'm not going to lie anymore. And you'll find that that lasts for about 10 minutes before you're done. And all you've done is worked on your will, but you haven't affected your heart. And so you need to do the hard work of heart work and ask, why did I lie? What's the sin behind the sin? What is it that I was looking for or longing for that made me lie there? And perhaps in one Scenario, it must be that you must gain human approval in order to be accepted and establish your worth. So why did you lie to her that time? Because I couldn't have her see me. I, I had to save face. I needed her to keep thinking well of me. I couldn't stomach the thought of her thinking poorly of me. And so I lied. It's not just that you lie. There's something in your heart that you're looking for that you say, if I could just have that, her approval then I'll be all set. And if lying is what it takes to get that, I'll do it. And so what do we need to do? As we expose the sin behind the sin, we need to begin to preach the gospel to ourselves. And the gospel says God has already accepted you through Jesus, and you don't need to be a slave to human approval. You see, the thing that you're looking for, you already have in Jesus. You just don't believe it. And so you need to repent again And turn again in faith to Jesus. Because the gospel says that when Christ came down to the earth and died in your place for your sins, he covered you with his righteousness. And he made you a child of God. And now God the Father, the highest being in the universe, has the highest opinion of you in the universe. So you don't have to be a slave to anyone else's opinion anymore because God has already spoken good over you. God already thinks the world of you. God has already approved you and accepted you and found you favorable in his sight. So everything that you want, you already have. You only need to believe it. We'll go through another one. Your need to succeed or you're frustrated with failure. 
What's the sin behind the sin? You must gain an identity through your performance and establish your worth. So I'll give you an example. Your, your need to succeed, your frustration with failure. As a parent, I'll give you an example. Maybe I've said this before. I need Hannah, my three-year-old, to obey me in public. And I need her to obey me in public, not for her soul or for her heart or for her sake. It's not that my heart is saying, listen, I need you to submit to my authority so that you'll submit to Jesus' authority. And I need you to walk the way of obedience so that you'll have life and not destruction. What I'm saying is I need you to obey because I need everyone in the room to know I'm a good parent. And if you disobey, that reflects poorly on me. Right? So what I need is I need everyone to grant me an identity through my performance. I need everyone to know that I'm a good dad. But if I could begin to preach the gospel to my heart, the gospel says God has given you an identity through the finished work of Jesus and his performance is enough. So when I'm about to be frustrated at Hannah because she's made me look bad and made my performance look weak in front of other people, at that moment I can begin to preach the gospel to my heart and remind my heart, listen, this is not about your work, it's about Jesus' finished work. This is not about how good you are, Jesus was good for you. And your identity is rooted in his performance and not your own. And so you don't have to work for an identity that comes from your performance. Jesus already finished the good work that was required. He's been good the way that you needed to be for you. And do you know what that does? That frees my heart. Because now I can actually parent Hannah for Hannah's sake. Whether I show her grace or through discipline and grace... I can actually parent her for her sake as opposed to you've got to obey so that I look good because I'm deep down needing this thing. I've already got it in Jesus and it frees my heart and it, and it progresses me along in sanctification. I'll give you one more. Failure to be generous, right? So maybe you know you should be more generous. You see the commercial of, of some poor country, and so you slap your wrist and you go, I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to be more generous. And so you write two more checks, but, but within a week it's gone, and so is the, the motivation to do it. So you've got to ask, why do I fail to be generous? Why is it, what's going on in my heart? And maybe deep down you find that inside you've got this security that's wrapped up in money. You must find security in your money. And so deep down, you go, the reason I can't be generous is because I believe that all my hope and all my future rests in what's in my bank account. Those zeros give me a sense of security, and all my hope for the future lies there. And so what you have to do is begin to preach the gospel to that idol and to that unbelief. And the gospel says that God provided Jesus who became poor so that you might become rich and will give you all things. So when I'm struggling with finding security in my money, I begin to preach truth to my own heart and remind myself of the gospel. And the gospel tells me, listen, Jesus was rich and he became poor so that in him I might be rich. And Jesus has literally given me all that I need. And he's not only secured my life, he's secured my eternal future. After I die, I'm going to live forever with him. So if I can trust him for my eternal future, I can trust him for every day. And Romans will say, if, if God did not spare his own son for you, how much more will he give you all things? See, if I believe the gospel, I would say, God broke the bank on me with Jesus. So is he going to withhold rent? If he gave me everything, namely the priceless gift of his son, can I not trust him for all things? And what that does is it begins to not just work on my will, it begins to change my heart. So now my security is in him, and he's my hope, and he's my future. And so now, freed, I can be generous. Not because I have to, not because that's what's going to make me better, but because Jesus is my security and my hope, and he's changed my heart. If we did all this, here's what would happen. Rather than shrinking the gospel, we would begin to grow in the gospel. And the cross, rather than being this stale thing way back in our rearview mirror, would become more precious 
and more central and bigger every day. I would begin to see my need for Jesus as not just something back there, but I need him today more than I needed him yesterday. And I'll need him tomorrow more than I needed him today. And my need for the gospel and my appreciation of God for giving me the gospel grows over time rather than shrinking. And I'm not finding a righteousness in myself. I'm continually beginning to see how Jesus is my righteousness. Every time I'm tempted to perform or pretend, I go back to the gospel. And I again repent and I say, Lord, I'm looking for things that I have in you. I don't believe it, so would you help me to believe it? I repent of my unbelief and my idolatry, and I come again to the gospel. And the cross begins to grow every day more and more so that it becomes more central. So that my life as a Christian is not going to be how hard I get after this thing and how good I am, but how he continually lets the gospel meet the need of how bad I truly am. And if we did this, if we began to do this, if we lived this gospel-centered life, it would impact everything about our community. Remember, we've got three words, gospel, community, and mission. It would impact the way we see the gospel. So the gospel would always be central and big in the life of Seven Mile Road Church. It would never drift off to the side. It would always take center stage. And when we spoke about being gospel-centered, we'd actually know what we were talking about. It would change how we see the gospel. It would show us how the gospel applies to everyday life. It would change how we do community. So when we gather into our soul care communities, if we got the gospel and began to preach it to our own hearts, we'd know how to preach it to one another. And we'd stop giving human advice about how the three tips to make your life better. We'd begin to say, what, what's the sin underneath that sin? What is it you're really looking for? Where is it you don't believe? Where is it that you're chasing an idol? And we'd begin to be able to apply the gospel to one another's hearts. And we'd preach this gospel to one another. I'll give an example. We had a guest preacher come, and his wife was in the back after our service just grabbing soda or something, and Shainu was there. And Shainu and her began to talk. This is just a, a guest preacher's wife. And, and Shainu was talking about how she's about to have a baby. This was before Micah was born. And then they were talking about parenting and breastfeeding and all this stuff. And, and I won't give you the details because Shainu will kill me. But at some point, she began to talk about how hard it was the first time and, and her concerns and fears. And this lady looked at her and said, remember, Shainu, your righteousness does not come from breastfeeding. And I remember laughing as I heard them being, really, the gospel applies to breastfeeding? Aren't we taking that a little bit far? And then I realized that's not, that's exactly right. We find our righteousness in the weirdest things. Moms will find their righteousness because we do it a certain way versus others who don't. Or parents will say, we homeschool our kids versus sending our kids to the public school or to the Christian school, which is the right. And everybody finds their own way of righteousness. And what if our community got the gospel so deeply that we began to speak to one another and said, listen, our righteousness doesn't come in X or Y or Z. It comes in Jesus. And we would constantly be pointing ourselves and, and reminding ourselves of the gospel. And we'd appreciate when someone else pointed that out for us. Because how freeing would that be for moms and parents and students and workers and, and single folks if we were constantly pointing one another to the gospel? And it would change how we do mission, right? Many of you long to share your faith with people. You long to share your faith with people that you love, who, who you long for them to know Jesus as you've known him. But sometimes the hardest part for you is how do you bring up the Jesus conversation? How do you go from here we are working together to let me tell you about Jesus? But think through this. If the gospel applied to all of life, suddenly you've got lots of different entry points for the gospel. Because now uh, a, a person who's talking about how they need this promotion because otherwise they're worth nothing, now you have an entry point. Because now you can talk about how you too found your identity through your performance and your achievements, but how Jesus set you free. The gospel suddenly isn't just this one thing that you've got to can the right speech to present. The gospel has impacted your whole life. 
It's impacted how you see your money and how you view work and how you study and how you do marriage and, and how you think about sex and how you think about all of life. And so the gospel has lots of different entry points because Jesus actually applies to every scenario and situation in life. It would free us to do mission and it'd begin to go to work on why we don't do mission. We wouldn't just stop slapping our wrists. We'd begin to see what is it in my heart that keeps me from sharing this faith? What is it that I'm really longing for and how does the gospel apply? It would change how we do it all. So my hope is not in these you know, 40 minutes together that you would get all of it, but hopefully it whets your appetite enough to go, this gospel is really big and we as a church ought to be growing in it deeper and more all the time and we ought to encourage one another to live gospel-centered lives so that we might see the cross becoming bigger and more central to all of life. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for this morning together to consider truths from your word. We pray that you would root the gospel at the center of Seven Mile Road Church and at the center of every heart of every person at Seven Mile Road Church. We pray that we would leave beside religion and moralism. We would leave beside this attempt to find our own righteousness apart from you. And we would grow in the gospel. That we would begin to learn how the gospel applies to all of life. I pray that you would grow us and mature us as a community in that for the sake of a better understanding of the gospel, for the sake of a better community, and for the sake of being better missionaries. We pray even today that if there is someone here, those of us among us who have not yet even come to faith in Christ, that today you would begin to convince us that we're still living as though there were God, we're just not calling him Jesus. We're still banking on something to give us purpose and meaning in life. And when we get it, we're going to find that it fell short and it wasn't enough. So today, would you move some people in this room to repent of their old lives and, and trusting in false gods and that they would trust today, maybe even for the first time in Jesus, that they would see him as God. They would see the bankruptcy of their life and sin that, that that life would be foreclosed on and a new reality would begin today. That they would trust that God in great love for them sent Jesus to the earth to live the life they should have lived and die in their place for their sins so that if they trust in him and allow him to be God, then they will be righteous forever. And would you allow some people who have been justified to now be sanctified through the gospel that we would continually confess of our false gods and our pursuits to build our own righteousness and we would see Jesus and we would continue to be built up in faith in him. And we truly long for the day when all who have been justified and sanctified will be glorified. Hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.